Section 13 of Studies in Love and in Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farah Iftikhar. Studies in Love and in Terror by Marie Belloc Lounders. Why they married. God doeth all things well though by what strange, solemn, and murderous contrivances. John Coxeter was sitting with his back to the engine in a first-class carriage in the Paris-Bologna night train. Not only Englishmen, but Englishmen of a peculiarly definite class, that of the London civil servant, was written all over his spare, still active figure. It was late September, and the rush homewards had begun, so Coxeter, being a man of precise and careful habit, had reserved a corner seat. Then, just before the train had started, a certain Mrs. Archdale, a young widowed lady with whom he was acquainted, had come up to him on the Paris platform, and to her he had given up his seat. Coxeter had willingly made the little sacrifice of his personal comfort, but he had felt annoyed when Mrs. Archdale, in her turn, had yielded the corner place with foolish altruism to a French lad exchanging ciferous farewells to his parents. When the train started, the boy did not give the seat back to the courteous Englishwoman to whom it belonged, and Coxeter, more vexed by the matter than it was worth, would have liked to punch the boy's head. And yet, as he now looked straight before him, sitting upright in the carriage which was rocking and jolting as only a French railway carriage can rock and jolt, he realised that he himself had gained by the lad's lack of honesty. By having thus given away something which did not belong to her, Mrs. Archdale was now seated, if uncomfortably hemmed in, and encompassed on each side, just opposite to Coxeter himself. Coxeter was well aware that to stare at a woman is the height of bad breeding, but unconsciously he drew a great distinction between what is good taste to do when one is being observed, and that which one does when no one can catch one doing it. Without making the slightest effort, in fact by looking straight before him, Nan Archdale fell into his direct line of vision, and he allowed his eyes to rest on her with an unwilling sense that there was nothing in the world he had rather they rested on. Her appearance pleased his fastidious, rather old-fashioned taste. Mrs. Archdale was wearing a long grey cloak. On her head was poised a dark hat trimmed with mercury wings. It rested lightly on the pale golden hair which formed so agreeable a contrast to her deep blue eyes. Coxeter did not believe in luck. The word which means so much to many men had no place in his vocabulary or even in his imagination. But still, the sudden appearance of Mrs. Archdale in the great Paris station had been an agreeable surprise, one of those incidents which just because of their unexpectedness, make a man feel not only pleased with himself, but at one with the world. Before Mrs. Archdale had come up to the carriage door at which he was standing, several things had contributed to put Coxeter in an ill humour. It had seemed to his critical British phlegm that he was surrounded, immersed against his will, in floods of emotion. Among his fellow-travellers the French element predominated. Heavens, how they talked! 
jabbered would be the better word, laughed and cried, how they hugged and embraced one another. Coxeter thanked God he was an Englishman. His feeling of bored disgust was intensified by the conduct of a long-nosed, sallow man who had put his luggage into the same carriage as that where Coxeter's seat had been reserved. Strange how the peculiar characteristics common to the Jewish race survive, whatever be the accident of nationality. This man also was saying good-bye, his wife being a dark, thin, eager-looking woman of a very common French type. Coxeter looked at them critically. He wondered idly if the woman was Jewish too. On the whole, he thought not. She was half crying, half laughing, her hands now clasping her husband's arm, now travelling with a gesture of tenderness up to his fleshy face, while he seemed to tolerate rather than respond to her endearments and extravagant terms of affection. Adieu, mon petit homme, adore, she finally exclaimed, just as the tickets were being examined, and to Coxeter's surprise, the adored one answered in a very English voice, albeit the utterance was slightly thick. "'There, there, that'll do, my dear girl. "'It's only for a fortnight, after all.' Coxeter felt a pang of sincere pity for the poor fellow, a cad, no doubt, but an English cad, cursed with an emotional French wife. Then his attention had been most happily diverted by the unexpected appearance of Mrs. Archdale. She had come up behind him very quietly, and he had heard her speak before actually seeing her. "'Mr. Coxeter, are you going back to England, or have you only come to see someone off?' Not even then had Coxeter, to use a phrase which he himself would not have used, for he avoided the use of slang, given himself away. Over his lantern-shaped face, across his thin, determined mouth, there had still lingered a trace of the supercilious smile with which he had been looking around him. And, as he had helped Mrs. Archdale into the compartment— as he indicated to her the comfortable seat he had reserved for himself. Not even she, noted, though she was for her powers of sympathy and understanding, had divined the delicious tremor, the curious state of mingled joy and discomfort, into which her sudden presence had thrown the man whom she had greeted a little doubtfully, by no means sure, that he would welcome her companionship on a long journey. And, indeed, in spite of the effect she produced upon him, in spite of the fact that she was the only human being who had ever had, or was ever likely to have, the power of making him feel humble, not quite satisfied with himself, Coxeter disapproved of Mrs. Archdale. At the present moment he disapproved of her rather more than usual, for if she meant to give up that corner seat, why had she not so arranged to sit by him? Instead, she was now talking to the French boy who occupied what should have been her seat. But Nan Archdale, as all her friends called her, was always like that. Coxeter never saw her, never met her at the houses to which he went simply in order that he might meet her, without wondering why she wasted so much of the time she might have spent in talking to him, and above all in listening to him, in talking and listening to other people. Four years ago, not long after their first acquaintance, he had made her an offer of marriage. Impelled by something which had appeared at the time quite outside himself and his usual wise, ponderate view of life, he had been relieved as well as keenly hurt when she refused him. 
everything that concerned himself appeared to john coxeter of such moment and importance that at the time it had seemed incredible that nan archdale would be able to keep to herself the peculiar honour which had befallen her one by the way which coxeter had never seriously thought of conferring on any other woman but as time went on he became aware that she had actually kept the secret which was not hers to betray and emboldened by the knowledge that she alone knew of his humiliating bondship he had again after a certain interval written and asked her if she would marry him again she had refused in a kind impersonal little note and this last time she had gone so far as to declare that in this manner she really knew far better than he did himself what was good for him and once more something deep in his heart had said amen when he thought about it and he went on thinking about it more than was quite agreeable for his own comfort or peace of mind coxeter would tell himself with what he believed to be a vicarious pang of regret that mrs archdale had made a sad mistake as regarded her own interest he felt sure she was not fit to live alone he knew she ought to be surrounded by the kind of care and protection which only a husband can properly bestow on a woman he coxeter would have known how to detach her from the unsuitable people by whom she was always surrounded nan archdale and coxeter was much concerned that it was so had an instinctive attraction for those poor souls who lead forlorn hopes and of whom they being unsuccessful in their fine endeavours the world never hears she also had a strange patience and tenderness for those ne'er-do-wells of whom even the kindest grow weary after a time nan had a mass of queer friends old protégés for whom she worked unceasingly in a curious detached fashion which was quite her own and utterly apart from any of the myriad philanthropic societies with which the world she lived in and to which she belonged by birth interests its prosperous and intelligent leisure it was characteristic that nan's liking for john coxeter often took the form of asking him to help these queer unsatisfactory people why even in this last week while he had been in paris he had come into close relation with one of mrs archdale's odd come shorts this time the man was an inventor and of all unpractical and useless things he had patented an appliance for saving life at sea nan archdale had given the man a note to coxeter and it was characteristic of the latter that while resenting what mrs archdale had done he had been at some pains when in paris to see the man in question the invention as coxeter had of course known would be the case was a ridiculous affair but for nan's sake he had agreed to submit it to the admiralty expert whose business it is to consider and pronounce on such futile things the queer little model which its maker believed would in time supersede the life-belts now carried on every british ship had but one merit it was small and portable at the present moment it lay curled up looking like a cross between a serpent's cast skin and a child's bent balloon in coxeter's portmanteau even while he had accepted the parcel with a coolly civil word of thanks he had mentally composed the letter with which he would ultimately dash the poor inventor's hope to-night however sitting opposite to her he felt glad that he had been to see the man and he looked forward to telling her about it 
scarcely consciously to himself it always made coxeter glad to feel that he had given nan pleasure even pleasure of which he disapproved and yet how widely apart were these two people's sympathies and interests putting nan aside john coxeter was only concerned with two things in his life his work at the treasury and himself and people only interested him in relation to these two major problems of existence nan archdale was a citizen of the world a free woman of that dear kingdom of romance which still contains so many fragrant byways and sunny oases for those who have the will to find them but for her freedom of this kingdom she would have been a very sad woman oppressed by the griefs and sorrows of that other world to which she also belonged for nan's human circle was ever widening and in her strange heart there seemed always room for those whom others rejected and despised she had the power no human being had ever had that of making john coxeter jealous this was the harder to bear inasmuch as he was well aware that jealousy is a very ridiculous human failing and one with which he had no sympathy or understanding when it affected as it sometimes did his acquaintances and colleagues fortunately for himself he was not retrospectively jealous jealous that is of the dead man of, of whom certain people belonging to his and to nan's circle sometimes spoke of as poor jim archdale coxeter knew vaguely that archdale had been a bad lot though never actually unkind to his wife nay more during the short time their married life had lasted archdale had, it seemed had to a certain extent reformed although he was unconscious of it john coxeter was a very material human being and this no doubt was why this woman had so compelling an attraction for him for nan archdale appeared to be all spirit and that in spite of her eager sympathetic concern in the lives which circled about hers and yet yet there was certainly a strong unspoken link between them this man and woman with so little in common the one with the other they met often if only because they both lived in marleybone that most conventional quarter of old georgian london she in wimpole street he in a flat in rigmore street she always was glad to see him and seemed a little sorry when he left her coxeter was one of the rare human beings to whom nan ever spoke of herself and of her own concerns but in spite of that curious kindliness she did not do what so many people who knew john coxeter instinctively did ask his advice and what was of course more seldom done take it in fact he had sometimes angrily told himself that nan attached no weight to his opinion and as time had gone on he had almost given up offering her unsought advice john coxeter attached great importance to health he realised that a perfect physical condition is a great possession and he took considerable pains to keep himself what he called fit now mrs archdale was recklessly imprudent concerning her health the health that is which was of so great a value to him her friend she took her meals at such odd times she did not seem to mind hardly to know what she ate and drank of the many strange things coxeter had known her to do by far the strangest and one which she could scarcely think of without an inward tremor had happened only a few months ago nan had been with an ailing friend and the ailing friend's only son in the highlands and this friend a foolish woman 
when recalling the matter coxeter never omitted to call this lady a foolish woman on sending her boy back to school had given him what had thought to be a dose of medicine out of the wrong bottle a bottle marked poison nothing could be done for the boy had started on his long railway journey south before the mistake had been discovered and even coxeter when hearing the story told had realised that had he been there he would have been sorry really sorry for the foolish mother but nan's sympathy and on this point coxter always dwelt with a special sense of injury had taken a practical shape she had poured out a similar dose from the bottle marked poison and had calmly drunk it observing as she did so i don't believe it is poison in the real sense of the word but at any rate we shall soon be able to find out exactly what is happening to dick nothing or at least nothing but a bad headache had followed and so far had nan been justified of her folly but to coxeter it was terrible to think of what might have happened and he had not shared in any degree the mingled amusement and admiration which the story as told afterwards by the culpable mother had drawn forth in fact so deeply had he felt about it that he had not trusted himself to speak of the matter to mrs archdale but mrs archdale was not only reckless of her health she was also reckless perhaps uncaring would be the truer word of something which john coxeter supposed every nice woman to value even more than her health or appearance that is the curiously intangible and yet so easily frayed human vesture termed reputation to john coxeter the women of his own class if worthy that is of consideration and respect went clad in a delicate robe of ermine and the thought that this ermine should have even a shade cast on its fairness was most repugnant to him now nan archdale was not as careful in this matter of keeping her ermine unspoiled and delicately white as she ought to have been and this was the stranger inasmuch as even coxeter realised that there was about his friend a una-like quality which made her unafraid because unsuspecting of evil another of the cardinal points of coxeter's carefully thought-out philosophy of life was that in this world no woman can touch pitch without being defiled and yet on one occasion at least the woman who now sat opposite to him had proved the falsity of this view nan archdale apparently indifferent to the opinion of those who wished her well had allowed herself to be closely associated with one of those unfortunate members of her own sex who at certain intervals in the history of the civilised world become heroines of a drama of which each act takes place in the law courts of these dramas every whispered word every piece of business to pursue the analogy to its logical end is overheard and visualised not by thousands but by millions in fact by all those of an age to read a newspaper had the woman in the case been mrs archdale's sister coxeter with a groan would have admitted that she owed her a duty though a duty which he would fain have had her shirk or rather delegate to another but this woman was no sister not even a friend simply an old acquaintance known to nan tis true over many years nan had done what she had done had taken her in and sheltered her going to the court with her every day simply because there seemed absolutely no one else willing to do it 
When he had first heard of what Mrs. Archdale was undertaking to do, Coxeter had been so dismayed that he had felt called upon to expostulate with her. Very few words had passed between them. "'Is it possible,' he had asked, "'that you think her innocent, that you believe her own story?' To this Mrs. Archdale had answered with some distress, "'I don't know. I haven't thought about it. "'As she says she is, I, I hope she is. "'If she's not, I'd, I'd rather not know it.' "'It had been a confused utterance, "'and somehow she had made him feel sorry "'that he had said anything. "'Afterwards, to his surprise and unwilling relief, "'he discovered that Mrs. Archdale "'had not suffered in reputation "'as he had expected her to do, "'but it made him feel more than ever "'that she needed a strong, wise man "'to take care of her, and to keep her out of the mischief into which her unfortunate good nature, that was the way Coxeter phrased it to her, was so apt to lead her. It was just after this incident that he had again asked her to marry him, and that she had again refused him, but it was since then that he had become really her friend. At last Mrs. Archdale turned away, or else the French boy had come to an end of his eloquence. Perhaps she would now lean a little forward and speak to him. The friend whom she had not seen for some weeks, and whom she had seemed so sincerely glad to see half an hour ago. But no, she remained silent, her face full of thought. Coxeter leaned back. As a rule, he never read in a train, for he was aware that it is injurious to the eyesight to do so. But tonight he suddenly told himself that, after all, he might just as well look at the English paper he had bought at the station. He might at least see what sort of crossing they were going to have tonight. Not that he minded for himself. He was a good sailor, and always stayed on deck whatever the weather. But he hoped it would be smooth for Mrs. Archdale's sake. It was so unpleasant for a lady to have a rough passage. Again, before opening the paper, he glanced across at her. She did not look strong. That air of delicacy combined, as it was, with perfect health, for Mrs. Archdale was never ill, was one of the things that made her attractive to John Coxeter. When he was with a woman, he liked to feel that he was taking care of her, and that she was more or less dependent on his good offices. Somehow or other, he always felt this concerning Nan Archdale, and that even when she was doing something of which he disapproved, and which he would fain have prevented her doing, Coxeter turned round so that the light should fall on the page at which he had opened his newspaper, which, it need hardly be said, was the morning post. Presently there came to him the murmuring of two voices, Mrs. Archdale's clear low utterances, and another's guttural and full. Ah, then he had been right. The fellow sitting there on Nan's other side was a Jew, probably something financial connected with the stock exchange. Coxeter of the Treasury looked at the man he took to be a financier with considerable contempt. Coxeter prided himself on his knowledge of human beings, or rather of men, for even his self-satisfaction did not go so far as to make him suppose that he entirely understood women. There had been a time when he had thought so, but that was long a while ago. He began reading his newspaper. There was a most interesting article on education— after having glanced at this, he studied more carefully various little items of social news which reminded him that he had been away from London for some weeks. Then, as he read on, the conversation between Nan Archdale and the man next to her became more audible to him. 
All the other people in the carriage were French, and so first one, and then the other, window had been closed. His ears had grown accustomed to the muffled, thundering sounds caused by the train, and gradually he became aware that Nan Archdale was receiving some singular confidences from the man with whom she was now speaking. The fellow was actually unrolling before her the whole of his not very interesting life, and by degrees Coxeter began rather to overhear than to listen consciously of what was being said. The Jew, though English by birth, now lived in France. As a young man he had failed in business in London, and then he had made a fresh start abroad, apparently impelled thereto by his great affection for his mother. The Jewish race, so Coxeter reminded himself, are admirable in every relation of private life, and it was apparently in order that his mother might not have to alter her style of living that the person on whom Mrs. Archdale was now fixing her attention had finally accepted a post in a Paris house of business. No, not financial. Something connected meat trade. Coxeter gathered that the speaker had at last saved enough money to make a start for himself, and that now he was very prosperous. He spoke of what he had done with legitimate pride, and when describing the struggle he had gone through, the fellow used a very odd expression. "'It wasn't all jam,' he said. Now he was in a big way of business, going over to London every three months, partly in connection with his work, partly to see his old mother.' Behind his newspaper, Coxeter told himself that it was amazing any human being should tell so much of his private concerns to a stranger. Even more amazing was in that a refined, rather peculiar woman, like Nan Archdale, should care to listen to such a commonplace story. But listening she was, saying a word here and there, asking two very quaint, practical questions concerning the sweetmeat trade. Why, even Coxeter became interested in spite of himself, for the Jew was an intelligent man, and as he talked on, Coxeter learnt with surprise that there is a romantic and exciting side even to making sweets. "'What a pity it is,' he heard Nan say at last in her low, even voice, "'that you can't now come back to England and settle down there. Surely it would make your mother much happier, and you don't seem to like Paris very much.' "'That is true.' said the man, but, well, unluckily there's an obstacle to my doing that. Coxeter looked up from his paper. The stranger's face had become troubled, preoccupied, and his eyes were fixed, or so Coxeter fancied them to be, on Nan Archdale's left hand, the slender bare hand on which the only ring was her wedding ring. Coxeter once more returned to his paper, but for some minutes he made no attempt to follow the dancing lines of print. "'I trust you won't be offended if I ask whether you are, or are not, a married lady.' The sweetmeat man's voice had a curious note of shamed interrogation threading itself through the words. Coxeter felt surprised and rather shocked. This was what came of allowing oneself to become familiar with an underbred stranger. But Nan had apparently not so taken the impertinent question, for I am a widow.' Coxeter heard her answer gently, in a voice that had no touch of offence in it, and then, after a few moments, staring with frowning eyes at the spread-out sheet of newspaper before him, Coxeter, with increasing distaste and revolt, became aware that Mrs. Archdale was now receiving very untoward confidences, 
confidences which Coxeter had always imagined were never made save under the unspoken seal of secrecy by one man to another. This objectionable stranger was telling Nan Archdale the story of the woman who had seen him off at the station and whose absurd phrase, adieu, mon petit homme, adore, had rung so unpleasantly in his, Coxeter's, ears. The eavesdropper was well aware that such stories are among the everyday occurrences of life, but his knowledge was largely theoretical. John Coxeter was not the sort of man to whom other men are willing to confide their shames, sorrows, or even successes, in a field of which the aftermath is generally bitter. In as far as such a tale can be told with decent ambiguity, it was so told by this man of whose refinement Coxeter had formed so poor an opinion, but still the fact that he was telling it remained, and it was a fact which to such a man as Coxeter constituted an outrage on the decencies of life. Mrs. Archdale, by her foolish good nature, had placed herself in such a position as to be consulted in a case of conscience concerning a Jewish tradesman and his light love, and now the man was debating with her, as with himself, as to whether he should marry this woman, as to whether he should force on his respectable English mother a French daughter-in-law of unmentionable antecedents. Coxeter gathered that the liaison had lasted ten years, that it had begun, in fact, very soon after the man had first come to Paris. In addition to his feeling of wrath that Nan Archdale should become cognizant of so sordid a tale, there was associated a feeling of shame that he, Coxeter, had overheard what it had not been meant that he should hear. Perforce the story went on to its melancholy and inconclusive end, and then, Suddenly, Coxeter became possessed with a desire to see Nan Archdale's face. He glanced across at her. To his surprise, her face was expressionless, but her left hand was no longer lying on her knee. It was supporting her chin, and she was looking straight before her. "'I suppose,' she said at last, "'that you have made a proper provision for your—' your friend i mean in case of your death i hope you have so arranged matters that if you, anything should happen to you this poor woman who loves you would not have to go back to the kind of life from which you took her even coxeter divined that nan had not found it easy to say this thing why no i haven't done anything of that sort I never thought of doing it. She's always been the delicate party. I am as strong as a horse. Still, still, life's very uncertain. Mrs. Archdale was now looking straight into the face of the stranger in whom she was thrusting unsought advice. She has no claim on me, none at all, the man spoke defensively. I don't think she'd expect anything of that sort. She's had a very good time with me. After all, I haven't treated her badly. I am sure you haven't, Nan spoke very gently. I am sure you have always been kind to her, but if I may use the simile you used just now, life, even to the happiest, the most sheltered of women, isn't all jam. The man looked at her with a doubting, shame-faced glance. "'I expect you're right,' he said abruptly. "'I ought to have thought of it. 
i'll make my will when i'm in england this time i ought to have done so before suddenly coxeter leaned forward he felt the time had come when he really must put an end to this most unseemly conversation mrs archdale he spoke loudly insistently she looked up startled at the sharpness of the tone and the man next to her whose eyes had been fixed on her face with so moved and doubting a look sat back i want you to tell that i've seen your inventor and uh, that i've promised to put his invention before the right quarter at the admiralty in a moment nan was all eagerness it really is a very wonderful thing she said i'm so grateful mr coxeter did you go and see it tried i did last time i was in paris the man took me to a swimming bath on the scene such an odd place and, and there he tested it before me I, I was really very much impressed i do hope you will say a word for it i am sure they would value your opinion coxeter looked at her rather grimly no i didn't see it tested to think that she should have wasted even an hour of her time in such a foolish manner and in such a queer place too i didn't see the use of doing so though of course the man was very anxious i should i am afraid the thing's no good how could it be he smiled superciliously and he saw her redden how unfair that is she exclaimed how can you possibly tell whether it's no good if you haven't seen it tried now i have seen the thing tried there was such a tone of protest in her voice that coxeter felt called upon to defend himself i dare say the thing's all right in theory he said quickly and i believe what he says about the ordinary life belts it's quite true i mean that they drown more people than they save but that's only because people don't know how to put them on this thing's a toy not practical at all he spoke more irritably than he generally allowed himself to speak for he could see that the jew was listening to all that they were saying all at once mrs archdale actually included the sweetmeat stranger in their conversation and coxeter at last found himself at her request most unwillingly taking the absurd model out of his bag of course you've got to imagine this is in a rough sea he said sulkily playing the devil's advocate and not in a fresh water river bath well i wouldn't mind trying it in a rough sea mr coxeter nan smiled as she spoke coxeter wondered if she was really serious sometimes he suspected that mrs archdale was making fun of him but that surely was impossible end of section thirteen recording by farah iftikhar